0: We are looking at the early chapters of Genesis. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 2 and beginning at verse 4 on page 4 of the Bible. (laughs) This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of tree grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into 4 headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river Is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. <coughs> Let's pray together. Gracious God, as you breathed life into Adam, graciously breathe upon us by your Spirit this morning that your inspired word will again inspire us. For your glory we pray. Amen. Well this morning, having spent three weeks in Genesis 1 to chapter 2 verse 3, we now move on. We move on from an epic, cosmic perspective on creation, brilliantly told as a story of seven days, and we move on to something more personal and more focused. The camera crew, as it were, uh, is zooming in. On one particular place, identified as Eden, and to one dramatic moment, the creation of the first human. No one is quite sure whether verse 4, the first verse we read of chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens No one is quite sure whether this is a summary of the first creation account or whether it is an introduction now to this new scene. But there is here not so much two different creation accounts telling the same story in different ways but two creation accounts that are seeking to answer different questions. Chapter 1 is answering the question, who is it that brought all things into being? And chapter two, in a very different style, is now pressing the question, so who exactly is this human creature that came into being on day six? And it's the second question that we come back to This morning. On Thursday of last week, Richard Dawkins, a brilliant biologist and the new atheist par excellence, was in town. I guess one or two of you went to hear him. He was speaking at an all ticketed event in the Younger Hall and introducing uh, his new book, uh, Science in the Soul. In the book, he celebrates rationalism. He celebrates the joy of finding beauty in the marvels of our biological complexity. He wants science to be soulful. He wants science to be moving, to be aesthetic. And so it is. But of course, a crucial part of his underlying passion is to kill off, as he puts it, any need for divinity to explain human dignity. Let's be soulful, he says, but the idea of humanity having divine life breathed into it, a soul if you want to call it that, is fanciful, he says. And so we come to this passage with great care. We come to this passage with great interest. There are things here actually that we would want to affirm in what Richard Dawkins is arguing. But the overall thrust takes us in an entirely different direction. I want us this morning to imagine this text as a huge canvas, a a great tapestry or a a brilliant watercolour with a background wash, with middle ground and with a foreground. And the background wash is indeed very watery. If you look at the description in verse 5 and 6 of planet earth before the creation of a garden. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Here is the world depicted as a watery wasteland, bleak, and inhospitable, and lonely, and uncared for. What a place for mankind, verse 7, to be brought in. But then we're told something dramatic in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. So here is the middle ground of this canvas. A beautiful, unspoiled, tree-lined parkland. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is translated paradise. And the Hebrew word Eden evokes the idea of bliss or delight or pleasure. It is, if you like, an enormous, tree-filled, Safari Park, planted by God, planted for mankind to enjoy. It was the world that God intended for us. And here on Harvest Sunday, it is the world we are called to give thanks for and to reflect on. Some of you know the story of the Scottish uh, missionary, uh, Robert Moffat, who went from East Lothian to what was then called Land, now just part of northern South Africa and Botswana. And uh, he, he's famous because his daughter married David Livingston. Uh, he was a farmer. He was a, a gardener. And uh, when he went in 1820 to this very bleak near desert part of Land, he made a beautiful garden He developed irrigation. He planted trees. And it's that sort of image of this beautiful garden placed in the background of a watery wasteland. So let's look at the garden. Look at verses 8 to 17. You get a feel that this is a real place. It is at a specific location called Eden. And it is in the east presumably east of Israel, somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia or Arabia. The rivers are, at least to some extent, known rivers. This is a real place. And yet at the same time, there is imagery here that rings all sorts of bells for those of us who know the wider Bible story. And in particular, what this account invites us to do is to see this Garden of Eden as something of a sanctuary. Something of a preview, indeed, of the tabernacle and the temple. So, for example, notice in verses 10 to 14, the prominence of rivers. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. And notice the oddness of the description. Normally tributaries come together to form one growing river. But here there is one river. Contrary to normal geomorphology it splits into four. Here is the symbol of divine life flowing out of Eden to the four corners of the earth. And at the very centre of the garden, verse 9, are two trees. Again, symbolic of divine life and wisdom at the very centre of all things. In the tabernacle, later on, was a golden lampstick, stylized as the tree of life. And the falling of its light on the 12 loaves of the present symbolize God's presence and his light sustaining the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice too there is gold aplenty in this garden. Look at verse 12. The gold of that land is good. Remember how the furnishings of the tabernacle, the ark and the altar of incense... And the lampstand were all overlaid with gold. And with the gold, precious stones, onyx in particular, the very gemstones of the temple, the gemstones worn by the priests. And all this beautifully and brilliantly is conveying that God placed humankind in no ordinary parkland. The whole canvas, as it were, shouts out... That this world, sadly now spoilt by sin, sadly now subject to frustration, as Paul would put it, is indeed God's world. The God who rested on the seventh day, as we heard about last week, is the God who inhabits this world. And in spite of its present darkness, he fills it with his presence. And this story calls us, therefore, to make a decision. How do we view this world? Is this world, in some sense, God's sanctuary? Or is this text simply aiding and abetting a myth, just wishful human thinking, a God delusion, as Richard Dawkins would have us believe? And then finally, look at the foreground of this canvas. For front and center stage of this second creation account is the creation of mankind. Beautifully told in the words of verse 7 here on the screen. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Here is day six retold. Human beings made in God's image. We counted now in a different way, and it's here just for a few moments. I want us to linger. Notice first something that has excited and puzzled scholars for centuries. For as we come to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the name of God changes. No longer, as in Genesis 1 and indeed in the rest of Genesis, is God referred to by his ordinary name for divinity, God, Elohim. But suddenly, God is now addressed as Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh rendered here in capital letters, not in my version there, but in your Bibles as as Lord. It is God's personal name. It is the name given to Moses. It is the unique name for Israel to address God, the name of Israel's covenant God. And this is very significant. Here is God drawing near now, Not just as the almighty creator, but as humanity's covenant partner. Humankind made by God and made for God. And so the telling of the creation of man begins. In our car we have a few CDs in a carousel put there by my son when we bought the car a number of years ago, and such is my life that I've never bothered to change these CDs, which bores us all silly, I don't listen to them much, but one of them is the CD of the theme tunes of one of the Narnia films, we know it a little too well. And each piece of music evokes memories and images of this film. So to change the imagery for a moment from a great canvas, think for a moment of a CD of film signature tunes. And in a way this story acts like that. For this account is told as history. It is told perhaps as prehistory. Clearly it's not a scientific account of our human origins. But its real power is the signature tunes that evoke images and truths that explain who we are. And briefly I want to highlight four. And the first signature tune, the first truth, is of our creatureliness. Look again at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. We are not heavenly beings, though I try and tell my wife I am occasionally. We are earthlings. We are made from earth, and there is a very clever wordplay here in the Hebrew. The Lord God formed Adam from the Adamah, from the Adamah, from the ground. Earthlings from earth, or as somebody tried to capture it in English, humans from humus. Man was created from the dust of the ground. His job is to cultivate the dust of the ground. And on death he will return to the dust of the ground. When God breathes into him, he becomes not, as the old authorised version translates, a living soul, as if they were some sort of separate part of us, but a living being, alive in our totality, And it's in that sense that we are no different from the animals who are also described in exactly the same way as living creatures in verse 19. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. To this limited extent, Richard Dawkins is right to debunk the idea of an immortal soul. But intertwined in this signature tune in the closest possible way is a second thing. And this is the theme of intimacy and therefore dignity. Look more closely at what happens. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The image is striking The Lord God himself, Yahweh, the personal God, stoops to shape and form each of us as a potter shapes earthenware. He uses his own hands, as it were, to shape this being. And what is more, he then stoops to give the kiss of life. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He breathes, he puffs, he blows into this being, his own divine breath. We are living creatures like the animals for sure, but totally contrary to Dawkins. We are unique, loved, formed creatures with a gloriously unique dignity. Creatures kissed and breathed into By God Himself. I guess I've never heard this expressed more eloquently than many years ago by Richard Holloway, who then was the Bishop of Edinburgh. And this is what he said. I've always found this very moving. This is my dilemma, he says. I am dust and ashes. Frail and wayward. A set of predetermined behavioral responses, riddled with fears, beset with needs. Dust and unto dust I will return. But there is something else in me. Dust I may be, but rubble dust. Dust that dreams. Dust that has strange premonitions of transfiguration, of a glory in store, of a destiny prepared, an inheritance that will one day be my own. So my life, he says, is stretched out in a strange tension between ashes and glory. I am, he says, an exasperating enigma, a strange duality, of dust and glory from the very first Adam. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And here's the third theme. For in this fertile garden garden full of beautiful trees, we are told in verse 9 that in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is clear is that if these two trees at the centre are at the centre, then mankind is not at the centre. The world does not revolve around us. And it is indeed a strange and ironic quirk of history that whenever man has taken centre stage, dehumanisation begins. So here is this third theme tune, this third truth. As human beings, we are dependent and we are answerable. Any life we have, any moral wisdom we have, comes from the one symbolised in these two trees... All of it comes from God. We are dependent on God moment by moment. And with that comes two things. First, a wonderful freedom. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. This garden, this world has been made for us to enjoy. And sometimes we forget that. The trees were pleasing to the eyes and were good for food. We are meant to celebrate a good world. But second comes not only freedom, but accountability. Look at verse 17. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This tree from which Adam must not eat, speaks of the moral knowledge and the ethical wisdom that God alone possesses. And to eat of it arrogantly, to quest to be like God, to quest for moral autonomy, is something that God says is not to be. Indeed, this second tree is part of his loving provision Moral boundaries are for our good. Aldous Huxley, famous for his brave new world, speaking not as a Christian of call, but speaking truth, says this, man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do as he likes. And then to a final signature tune, a final theme. And here at last we come to Harvest. This is the theme of our human vocation, our human responsibility. Way back in verse 5, if you cast your eye back, we read the comment, there was no one to work the ground. But then look down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to take care of it, to till it and to guard it to cultivate it and to protect it. It's striking that these same two words are the words used of the Levites when they served in the temple, underlining again that this Garden of Eden symbolically is the place of God's dwelling. From the very beginning, God was prepared to allow us as human beings to be his estate managers. Our calling is to be park keepers. We are charged with preserving this world, of ensuring it is a place of goodness and beauty. And on this Harvest Sunday, as we come together to thank God for his goodness, we come surely equally to confess in shame what a very poor job we have made of our human vocation. And, of course, we're going to come to how sin and rebellion came into this garden. In spite of the vigorous advocacy against deforestation, against much progress that we would want to celebrate, still more trees are being cut down than we would ever replant. Such is the resultant soil erosion that an estimated 11% of formerly vegetated soil is now beyond recovery. And vast areas of our continents have been rendered dust And so we could go on. So let me conclude. A popular theme of novels and, th- of, and films is the story of the person who has forgotten who they are. Here is Jason Bourne, played by, by Matt Damon, found by fishermen floating adrift in the Mediterranean with two gunshot wounds in his back. And the man awakes, find he is suffering from acute amnesia He can speak, he has advanced combat skills, but he has no memory of his identity. And so the adventure begins. And the purpose of this creation account is to remind us who we are. One of Satan's best known tactics is identity theft. Stealing from us the knowledge of who we really are. And my pastoral suggestion this morning is that some of us here have suffered identity theft. We have had stolen from us, by the secular voices of this world, who we really are. We have forgotten who we really are. We've never discovered, perhaps, who we really are. And some of us are here this morning way down with anxiety, way down with fear. Some of us here this morning perhaps feel lonely and forgotten. Some of us here this morning don't like ourselves, if we're really honest. And we will only discover who we are when God is our reference point. Only when we realize that it was a living God who made us and breathed his life into us, who made us in love and who holds us in love, will we begin to discover who we really are. And we will only come to discover who we really are until we come to Jesus Christ, who knew who he was before the Father, and is the one saviour of the world who can bring us to the Father, forgive us our sins, reconcile us to the Father, and allow us to discover before the Father who we are as his loved creatures and children. We are more than highly complex, brilliantly adapted, conscious and intelligent beings. We are God's special creation, in whom he breathes his divine life, who are recipients of so many good gifts from him, for which we gather to thank God this morning. And we are accountable to him. And we have all failed. We are dependent upon him. And that's why we need his forgiveness. And we are called, all of us, whatever we do, to a vocation of great dignity to be caretakers of his world. Someone recommended... I read Jonathan Sacks' book on Genesis for this series, the former chief rabbi, and I'm grateful for that recommendation. And in his introduction, he says this, no other ancient literature has so contemporary a feel. This is our story. This is where we came from. And this is our journey.